thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. Um, as someone who um, flew yesterday from uh, an orange zone to a yellow zone, I must say I'm delighted <laughs> that you're all interested in our problems on the East Coast uh, or in Washington. And of course, I don't need to tell this group the uh, importance of, uh, of terrorism as uh, a national security threat today. Part of what this uh, book is about is how, uh, how it came to be that um, a peripheral, uh, a peripheral, excuse me, a peripheral security threat in the 80s and 90s came to be a vital, uh, a vital issue for the United States, and how the bureaucracy had a hard time uh, accepting that fact, but also what was going on within, uh, within. Um, Al-Qaeda and affiliated terrorist groups uh, to cause such a change in the nature of the violence that we would face. Let me, um, let, let me begin. I wanted to give a, a brief status report in the War on Terror, and then we can uh, talk more about uh, some of these issues. Um, <clears throat> when I've given uh, speeches over the last year, until well, basically between February and December, uh, I felt the need to reiterate that uh, terrorism was in fact a, a continuing issue for the United States. Many people, I think, felt that we had uh, gotten over the worst of it in the, the year after 9-11. I think that the last uh, uh, month has convinced people otherwise. Uh, let me try to sum up where I think we are by saying that I think that we have made enormous success at the, uh, on the tactical level, but we are uh, slipping rather dangerously on the strategic level, and it may be a good while before we can turn that around even if we um, even if we have a change of understanding of the challenge that we face um, terrorism is first and foremost a matter of, for intelligence services and law enforcement agencies which track arrest or kill the terrorists uh, thwart their conspiracies and dismantle their organizations and in terms of these activities we have done better uh, since 9-11 than anyone I think uh, in the field would have expected on that day uh, I won't run through all of the uh, major conspirators who have been uh, arrested, but um, certainly one of the high points was the capture of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed last uh, uh, last March in Pakistan. Which you all remember the image of the disheveled man being uh, roused from his bed in the middle of the night wearing uh, a remarkably stretched out T-shirt. Uh, in addition to being a very good advertisement for pajamas, that was uh, a good... <laughs> a good uh, moment for the United States because he was a large part of the reason why Al-Qaeda was the most innovative and lethal terrorist group we'd ever faced. He was not only a key figure in the 9-11 conspiracy, but also in the bombing of the USS Cole and a number of other plots, including the uh, conspiracy that uh, is known alternatively as Bojinka or the Manila Air uh, plot. That, you may recall, uh, centered on a plan to bomb 11 or 12 American flag 747s over the Pacific. And just uh, so that you can uh, recall how uh, persistent this threat is, um, if that plot were uh, begun again uh, today and we didn't have an intelligence tip, it would likely succeed because the, excuse me, the explosive that uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and more importantly his nephew, Ramzi Yusuf, devised um, would be, uh, is not identifiable by any uh, 
any uh, technology that we currently have in place. It's a liquid explosive, and um, it had already been uh, essentially road tested in a, uh, in a on a Philippines Airlines jet um, in the early 90s, where Ramsey left it on board in a left a, a, a device on board in a uh, contact lens case, uh, contact lens fluid uh, container, and it blew a hole in the plane and killed a Japanese tourist. And it was a complete mystery as to what was going on then until uh, a fire in the uh, apartment that Ramsey and, and um, his uncle were staying in uh, in Manila uh, brought the authorities in and began unraveling that conspiracy. Uh, in all, some 3,000 Al-Qaeda operatives are said to have been taken off the street and incarcerated. Between a third and two-thirds of the group's senior leadership has been arrested or killed. These achievements have been due in large measure to the uh, galvanizing effect that 9-11 had on intelligence and law enforcement authorities uh, in the United States, and particularly the FBI needed to be galvanized, and uh, around the world. Um, now, I... I should uh, put that in context a little. Before 9-11, we've been working very hard to destroy Al-Qaeda, and it's a cautionary note that uh, a man named Mamdou Salim, who was apprehended in Germany in the late 1990s, uh, late 1998 to be specific, uh, was actually the highest level uh, Al-Qaeda person ever captured. He was the number three man in the organization, and we uh, found him in Germany shopping for components for weapons of mass destruction. So it does give you an idea, first of all, of how resilient the organization is, um, because he was uh, uh, he, the person who was in his position has been replaced, I think, now three times. So this is an organization that is very good at promoting from within and coming up with skilled uh, uh, officials. Um, one of the things that we discuss at great length in the book, which I'll so, uh, show you and so you can catch your eye in the bookstore, um, we faced a twofold problem in the late 90s. First, within the United States, much of the bureaucracy was not persuaded that terrorism had become a first order uh, security threat. And I don't want to dwell on that, but we do spend a good part of the book um, uh, discussing how different agencies uh, viewed the threat at the time. Uh, it's safe to say parts of the CIA got it, um, although uh, not, not all the CIA by any means. Uh, at the FBI, there was a far greater uh, unwillingness to recognize this danger. Another problem we had, though, was that uh, intelligence services around the world, uh, many of them were not as convinced as we were of the threat. This was not the case, for the most part, in the Arab world, where uh, uh, governments had uh, hard experience with the veterans of the Afghan Jihad and were actually uh, quite motivated to do what they could to crack down on al-Qaeda. They cracked down so efficiently that in some countries they exported the problem to Europe uh, and the, that sowed the seeds for our own uh, difficulties. <laughs> our bigger problem was with our European partners, many of whom <laughs> thought that we were exaggerating the threat and um, looking for a replacement for uh, the emotional uh, vacuum left by the Cold War, by the end of the Cold War. Uh, it's safe to say that after 9-11, that uh, argument was no longer made. The skepticism has disappeared, and cooperation today is excellent. And I would add that even um, below the surface of a very roiled uh, transatlantic relationship, that cooperation uh, remains very, very good. Um, because of our differences over Iraq, we may have a much harder time uh, uh, creating a common political agenda for dealing with the larger problems behind 
terrorism, but at the uh, tactical level, uh, the work is, I think, satisfying both sides, um, despite the inevitable friction over intelligence sharing and similar uh, issues. Let me give you um, just a few other data points that suggest that uh, uh, the terrorist threat needs to be uh, taken very, very seriously. Still, um, every time we uh, every time we thwarted a major conspiracy or experienced a major attack, um, we took we tried to take the measure of Al Qaeda and we got it wrong. This was true after the East Africa embassy bombings, the Millennium Conspiracy. Uh, and the bombing of the coal. Every time we had another international dragnet and every time we found uh, more cells, more operatives, more organization than we had ever expected. Uh, the head of German intelligence, the BND, has uh, estimated the total number of people who went through the Afghan camps at 70,000. There are now estimates that go even higher. Now, not all those people were trained to be terrorists. Some of them were trained just to be sort of regular paramilitary soldiers to fight alongside the Taliban. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that in itself is a very uh, uh, disquieting figure. Additionally, when we talk about the war on terror, we frequently use uh, inapt metaphors. And the one that gets used the most is that it is a war, and that and since it's a war, we're fighting an army. Terrorism, terrorist organizations are not armies. Uh, you can decimate uh, you know, a, a, a military unit and it ceases to be an effective fighting force. But if you decimate, and by decimate, the classic definition is you reduce by 10%. Um, we decimate a terrorism organization and uh, you have left plenty of cells intact and uh, you don't need very many intact cells to carry out uh, a truly uh, terrifying uh, conspiracy. So we need to keep, we need to keep that in mind um, as we go forward. There are at least a dozen or so top Al-Qaeda officials who have the authority and the wherewithal to carry out a major uh, attack. Uh, bin Laden and uh, his, his deputy Ayman al-Zwahiri are probably spending most of their time uh, taking care of their own security, but there's still quite a number of people um, who would know how to turn the key on a, on a catastrophic conspiracy. Um, we also um, we also uh, have to remember that uh, attacks like 9/11 uh, take a very long time to organize, and so while we may, you know, make a, a legitimate uh, estimate that the reason we have not had a second attack is the damage done to Al Qaeda since 9/11, we really can't be sure. These things can take three, four, five, six years, and that um, ought to be uh, more reason for caution. Another point, there has been the perception since 9-11 that we have had a period of some calm. Uh, excuse me, and to the extent that the U.S. has been spared, that is true, but on the global scale, the perception is incorrect. Al-Qaeda and its affiliates have carried out uh, an extraordinary number of attacks and attempted many more. Uh, you only need to mention Bali, Riyadh, Casablanca, Moscow, Mombasa, Riyadh again and Istanbul to uh, think of the main ones. There have been many smaller ones, including the assassination of a U.S. diplomat in Jordan, the bombing of a French tanker uh, off the coast of Yemen, and so on. In the past, we chronically uh, failed to build into our understanding of our, of our foe uh, the many uh, threats that were thwarted, the many conspiracies that were halted, and I don't think we should make that error again. Uh, we need to keep in mind that in the last couple of years, um, Al-Qaeda uh, or affiliated groups tried to destroy ships passing through the Straits of Gibraltar. 
to blow up multiple embassies and warships at harbor in Singapore, to fire Stinger missiles at planes at Heathrow, to uh, carry out poisonings using ricin, uh, and so on. There have been, uh, there's been quite a lot of uh, activity, and by any standard, I would say this is the high water mark for uh, terrorist activity in the post-war period. The next closest would be 1982-83 with Hezbollah, and um, I don't think that nearly uh, compares. So that's the tactical uh, situation. I think that if we stay at the level we're at now, um, we will go through a period of, of some nervousness, but um, my guess is that Americans at least can become accustomed to the occasional uh, attack, uh, certainly abroad, possibly at home, in which we have uh, double-digit casualties, even occasionally low triple-digit casualties. But the question really is, uh, what lies uh, over the horizon? Are we going to see more <coughs> catastrophic attacks in which uh, we see uh, even greater carnage? And I think to answer this question, we need to look at the strategic uh, situation. And my, um, my central point here is that uh, we as a nation all too often look at al-Qaeda as a group to be dismantled in much the same way we look at it as an army and we forget that it is also an ideology. And in this uh, realm, it is making extraordinary uh, inroads. Um, <clears throat> this is not really a place to go into a, a great detail on the nature of this ideology, but it suffices to say that at the core of it is a Gnostic view of the world in which uh, the believers are on one side and uh, infidels and their apostate supporters, that is, apostate Muslim supporters, are on the other. And this has uh, been a, a very attractive ideology for many people uh, in the Islamic world and Muslims living in uh, a diaspora situation in Europe, the United States, even South America, and Australia, I should add, um, <clears throat> for a number of reasons. First of all, it answers the questions particularly for those in Muslim countries, why their lives are so unfulfilling and why their conditions are so miserable. And um, it also answers uh, the question uh, with an authenticity uh, that they have not experienced uh, in recent history as they've been uh, subjected to or, or exposed to different ideologies that have tried to uh, entice them, whether it was Arab nationalism, um, uh, the you know, communism that was uh, uh, tempting to many uh, in, in several Arab countries, um, Al-Qaeda's ideology is not mainstream Islam by any means, but it has, uh, its formulators have shown some genius in that they have couched their ideology in terms that resonate, in terms that, um, in a language that derives from uh, hundreds of years of uh, Islamic practice and from uh, ideas that really go back seven or eight hundred years. <clears throat> One of the uh, and by the way, this is also an issue we talk about at great length, what the core ideas are of the, um, of the ideology. We talk about that in the book. Um, one of the uh, uh, one news story that caught my eye recently, maybe some of you saw it in the New York Times, I believe, was about uh, a raid that U.S. troops carried out on uh, a mosque. I believe it was in Baghdad. U.S. troops have not carried out many raids on mosques, and they do it only when they uh, believe there's really good reason to think that there's something uh, dangerous going on there. The name of the mosque that they raided was the Ibn Taymiyyah Mosque. 
Um, Ibn Taymiyyah is really the, uh, the fountainhead for the ideology uh, of Al-Qaeda, and he was um, a cleric who lived uh, in the 13th and 14th centuries uh, at the time of the Mongol, or actually just after the Mongol, um, uh, the, the Mongol conquest of Baghdad, uh, of all places, and he was the person who wrote a fatwa that justified the killing of, uh, of Mongols, uh, but who he termed to, uh, as insufficient or uh, apostate Muslims. That uh, is really the uh, where so much of the ideology of Al Qaeda comes from. What I would like to know is how long has that mosque been named the Ibn Taymiyyah Mosque? Because Ibn Taymiyyah has been a very controversial figure. Uh, particularly to Arab autocrats for a long time, but he was a primary influence on some of the modernizers of, uh, uh, of Islam uh, earlier in this century. He was a key influence on um, Ibn Abdul Wahhab in, in Saudi Arabia and a very important influence on Said Qutb, the uh, Egyptian uh, writer who really is uh, the modern uh, formulator of uh, radical Islamism. As I said, this is a very powerful ideology. Um, I think that when anyone comes, uh, dares to write a history of, uh, comprehensive history of globalization, uh, they will need to devote a chapter to how effectively uh, Al-Qaeda has been an agent of globalization, how effectively it has used the tools of globalization to spread this ideology to places where uh, one might have thought that it would not ordinarily take root, whether it's in Southeast Asia or among the, the uh, Muslim communities of uh, France or the Midlands of Great Britain. Um, the terms in which people talk about uh, some of the core concepts now are uh, identical, and it has been one of the really great achievements uh, in terms of spreading ideas uh, in the modern world with uh, extraordinary alacrity. One of the key ideas of Al-Qaeda is that, uh, and it comes down to them from, uh, in particular, the, uh, uh, the Al-Jihad group that uh, engineered the assassination of, um, of Anwar al-Sadat, is that jihad has been the neglected obligation of Muslims today, that it is actually uh, a duty uh, equal and perhaps greater than the five pillars of Islam. Al-Qaeda has been able to do this because uh, there's an extraordinary ferment going on in the Muslim world. Uh, and uh, as uh, the scholar uh, Richard Bullitt uh, has said, uh, at, the, at the street level, there is no agreement on fundamental uh, Muslim doctrine today. And Al-Qaeda has, has uh, sought to fill this vacuum by uh, redefining uh, many of the central concepts in Islam. This is a, a situation much like our own reformation of uh, uh, the 15th, 16th, and early 17th centuries. And um, it's a sign of uh, just how tremendous the, uh, the change that is going on in the, in the Muslim world is. Whatever the case, uh, Al-Qaeda has made considerable strides with this uh, ideology. And um, I think that um, any American policy that seeks to deal with terrorism over the long term is going to have to set itself the task of keeping the most radical form of this ideology confined to the small circle of people who adhere to it now and who are motivated to violence and prevent it from spreading to the much larger uh, concentric circle of uh, people who may be uh, at risk for it, we could say. Um, 
If you look, however, at uh, some of the polling data that we have on ideas and opinions in the uh, Muslim world, uh, there is reason to be uh, fearful. I think that uh, many of you will be familiar with the Pew Global Attitudes Project and with the survey that was released in June, which stated that the bottom, and I'm quoting, the bottom has fallen out of support for America in most of the Muslim world. It is now the case that only 27% of Moroccans, one of our, uh, actually the country with which I think we have our second longest, uh, uh, it wasn't an alliance, but we signed a treaty with them already in the early 19th century, in the very first decade. 27% uh, of Moroccans, 15% of Lebanese and Turks, 13% of Indonesians, 12% of Pakistanis, and 1% of Jordanians and Palestinians have a favorable view of the United States. Now, Historically, um, the, the U.S. government has not had a very good reputation in those countries, but we were admired as a people for our freedom, for our values, for our entrepreneurial spirit, for our relationship with technology and the like. But those, uh, when, when the pollsters ask questions uh, about that now, uh, the, uh, the feelings for Americans have gotten much, much worse, and they're now approaching those um, that are uh, those that relate to uh, how the government is viewed. Um, there is an increasing echo in these numbers uh, of jihadist arguments uh, that, um, and this is driven in part by the perception that the United States is the only prop that corrupt and autocratic uh, regimes in these uh, parts of the world, uh, that it's the only prop that supports them, and that is the classic Al-Qaeda argument. One of um, the most interesting questions that was asked by Pew, and I don't think that the uh, pollsters had any idea just how resonant an issue this is uh, when they posed it, was, uh, do you think that your country is at imminent risk of military attack from the United States? And the numbers were extraordinary. Uh, in seven of eight uh, population survey, Muslim population survey, 50% or more believe that was the case. And this is quite astonishing. The only country where it wasn't true, Nigeria, 42% of the people thought it was the case. Now, at the very core of bin Laden's message is the argument the United States seeks to occupy Muslim lands and destroy Islam. Uh, you know, the parallel, the, I should say, the convergence of uh, popular opinion and the Al-Qaeda message uh, should worry everyone. Um, and by the way, uh, in six of the populations studied, um, 40% uh, or more had confidence that bin Laden would do the right thing in world affairs and a majority of Jordanians and Palestinians placed their trust in the terrorist. Another uh, thing that we look at to, uh, to get a sense of uh, where opinion is going in the, uh, in the Muslim world is clerical discourse. And um, here too we see that many uh, clerics who for a long time have been relied upon for moderation in large measure because they represent the establishment in those countries and because they're paid by the government uh, are increasingly tacking towards the extremes and that they feel that they need that, uh, to uh, espouse ever more radical sentiments if they're to maintain a hold on their, on their audiences. Um, and there is a strong competition from more radical uh, preachers. And so if you look, for example, over the last year or two, the pronouncements of the Sheikh of Al-Azhar, the preeminent seat of Sunni learning, he's saying things that sound very much like uh, radical clerics uh, who are not being paid 
by the Egyptian government, when he, in particular when he talks about Iraq. Um, it is, of course, true that uh, by invading Iraq, we have not helped ourselves in this particular area, wherever else we may have helped ourselves, um, because we have played right into uh, al-Qaeda's uh, game plan. Uh, and I might add that if you look back at some of the pre-invasion statements, which were often characterized by uh, government officials, including, let's say, uh, Secretary of State, as showing the sympathy between al-Qaeda and Iraq, the two-way sympathy, uh, in fact, it showed something very different. It showed that al-Qaeda was practically cheerleading for an invasion, while Saddam was eager to avoid uh, an event that uh, would have spelled the end and did spell the end of his rule. Um, a number of other uh, uh, points worth bringing up. In, um, in Europe, we're seeing a radicalization of opinion uh, that is, uh, that is uh, significant. If you haven't seen it, I recommend the article that uh, the French scholar Olivier Roy did in uh, national, the National Interest uh, last year, I believe, which was quite persuasive about this, that uh, young Muslims uh, are feeling increasingly alienated both from the uh, young Muslims in Europe are feeling alienated from the religious practices in their household where they think that their parents are espousing a sort of uh, inauthentic uh, namby-pamby accommodationist religion. Uh, and they feel alienated from their ambient environment because they feel that they've not been accepted by uh, Western European society and certainly compared with the United States. That, that is true. Um, one of the developments uh, that we also see going on today is a relocalization of the jihadist struggle. Al-Qaeda may indeed be in, uh, in some uh, distress, but we're seeing increasingly Islamist groups that hitherto had no uh, relationship with Al-Qaeda uh, taking up the Al-Qaeda agenda. This clearly was the case in Casablanca uh, last year, where a, uh, an Islamist slum group uh, that had very few historic ties to uh, extreme radicals uh, started targeting Westerners in a divergence from past practice. I think some of this is also true in the attacks we've seen in Saudi Arabia, where everyone who is uh, uh, a dissident now or anti-regime is being termed Al-Qaeda, but it's clear that some of these operatives had no real experience of Al-Qaeda training uh, and little contact with uh, Al-Qaeda operatives. The fact that they, in the last attack, they didn't find any Americans at all, and they killed so many Muslims has been, uh, I think, is, is good evidence of that point. Uh, let me just talk about a few of the other uh, longer-term factors uh, that are going to condition uh, our dealings with, uh, um, with the Muslim world in the years ahead, and perhaps then I'll stop and we can talk about policy solutions and other, um, other issues. Um, the, uh, we don't know how far the uh, ideology can really go, but if you consider some economic and demographic facts, um, there is um, ample reason for gloom. Uh, the economics of, uh, of the Arab world in particular, and the larger uh, Muslim world, uh, have been um, pretty appalling over uh, in recent times. Uh, we always think of sub-Saharan Africa as being the basket case of the world economy, but in fact, sub-Saharan Africa has uh, done about 50% better uh, in terms of per capita growth in the Islamic world over the last 15 years. Foreign direct investment, um, and I believe that excludes the oil industry, 
um, is uh, below Africa's. Uh, I may be wrong about that. And I think that in the era when we're occupying Iraq, I don't think that investment risk assessments are going to, are going to result in any improvement in that. I might add that as long as uh, uh, there are uh, shoulder-fired missiles uh, uh, sprinkled all across Iraq, I don't see anyone playing commercial airlines in there anytime soon to bring all those technocrats and businessmen and entrepreneurs in. Uh, total non-oil exports from the region amount to uh, about the same of those from Finland, a country of five million. Uh, we can't, we don't have time to go into literacy and environmental issues and the like, but just consider the demographic crisis. In the next 15 years, Egypt will grow 20%, Jordan 44%, Syria 39%, Saudi Arabia 56%, and the Palestinian territories uh, 64%. I was just in Saudi Arabia, and of course the statistics there are uh, completely unreliable, but uh, the rule of thumb is they have one-third unemployment among Saudi nationals. and uh, there's a big dispute over how many Saudi nationals are actually working in the private sector at all. Some people say uh, fewer than 10%. Uh, and that's only counting men. So, uh, you know, tell me how a country is going to cope with that level of uh, un- and underemployed young people uh, in the years to come. It's, uh, it's startling. Now, the Saudis have done very well because they have lots of money in buying off the population for a long period of time. But I think their, their work is cut out for them now. As I don't need to tell you, um, the correlation between uh, enormous youth bulges like this and revolutionary activity and social unrest is, uh, is very close. And so um, I think we face some, some very rough sledding. I don't know what the ideology of uh, opposition will be. Uh, I think it's a safe bet that Jeffersonian democracy is not going to be it. Uh, radical Islam has already been articulated. Perhaps many of these people will be alienated by the willingness to kill Muslims. Um, but perhaps not, or perhaps the ideology will be refined over time. We have a lot uh, in front of us. It's going to be a very challenging period. Uh, I don't think that the uh, terrorism is going to go away. As a British, senior British intelligence official said last week, uh, going to be here for 50 years. Now, there's a certain one-upmanship going on, see who can come up with the longest uh, uh, period of time that we're going to be... Uh, uh, plagued by this, but um, I hope I've set out for you some of the uh, uh, structural facts that I think suggest that we have a long way to go. And I would add, as my final word, that we are doing well on the tactical side. We do have very good uh, intelligence and law enforcement work going on, but we do not yet have a foreign policy to cope with radical Islam. And we have not begun to think of one. Um, I guess neoconservatives would argue that by occupying Iraq and making it a, an example uh, for the rest of the Muslim world, uh, we do have a strategy. I remain unpersuaded that the power of this example should it ever be created, and that's a big question to begin with, um, that the power of this example is going to be so compelling since uh, whatever Iraq emerges will be militarily weak and uh, be viewed as an American lackey in the region, and that has never helped anyone. So why don't I stop right there? Um, I gave a talk like this uh, a few months ago and said someone said to me, do you have any good news? Uh, I'm afraid I don't, but uh, at least there's a lot to chew on. Uh, you know, just to sort of touch on the fact, you mentioned Moscow as an example of an attack by Al-Qaeda. And the first time I heard that, 
The, uh, well, the Moscow theater uh, hostage taking, in which so many people were killed, the head of the operation was a, a Chechen who had been trained by um, bin Laden's close ally uh, in the region, a man named Khattab. And, uh, you know, there are clearly very close contact between parts of the Chechen uh, opposition and al-Qaeda. There's no question. In fact, um, when I was in the government, we watched the, the insurrection in Dagestan explode into the Second uh, Chechen War. That was created by jihadists who were, uh, who were uh, you know, in, imbued with the same ideology as al-Qaeda. So I wouldn't say that it was directly al-Qaeda, but I would say that it was al-Qaeda related. Related to that question, the speaker here at the center earlier um, criticized some of the arguments that have been made within terrorism experts, uh, among terrorist experts, that they tend to equate terrorist activities with al-Qaeda too readily, that basically, as you're suggesting, because one person was trained by another, that we tend to argue in our discourse and other things that it is all kind of al-Qaeda-based terrorism, when in fact uh, groups such as the one you mentioned in Moscow have really local agendas driven by regional problems rather than, say, the anti-American agenda that al-Qaeda has. And I guess the second part of that question would be, um, is, is it terrorism per se that's the real threat, or is it al-Qaeda as an organization? Uh, two good questions. Every uh, group that is not al-Qaeda itself has to be considered in its own indigenous context. There's no question about that, and there's no question that a lot of the people who are fighting for Chechen independence uh, do not share the view of uh, al-Qaeda that it wants to reestablish a caliphate, drive, uh, drive the royal family out of Saudi Arabia, drive the U.S. out of the Middle East. There's no question about that, and it's a fair um, the criticism. As I said before, the extent to which al-Qaeda has managed to propagate its ideology and to get a piece of the action in, um, in uh, conflicts around the world is extraordinary. Um, you know, Jemaah Islamiyya may have some specifically Southeast Asian uh, concerns, um, but it, it is still very much uh, related to al-Qaeda. And the, one aspect of bin Laden's genius in all this is that long before he, he started uh, uh, carrying out attacks against the United States, he was um, what was known, he was referred to at the CIA as the Ford Foundation for Terrorism. And what he did was he, you know, uh, got weapons and, and uh, money to different groups around the world, many of which historically had their own indigenous, uh, uh, you know, reasons for rebellion. And uh, he created this network. And increasingly, we've seen a convergence in ideology of the many different groups. Chechnya is a very complex picture, picture but there's definitely uh, an, a, a strong element of this there. Um, to answer your second question, if I've answered your first one adequately, um, we have, um, well, I'm kind of wondering if, it's, if you're asking me for a prescription or an analysis. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a war on al-Qaeda. We have uh, a sort of hit and miss or stop and start war on terrorism in general. I think that um, we should... Um, keep in mind that most terrorist groups, and this is something we talk about a lot in here as well, most terror, historically most terrorist groups have sought to carry out attacks involving cal calibrated violence um, for the purpose of creating uh, theater, 
for gaining leverage, for gaining acceptance in uh, a negotiating position, negotiating situation, so that they could revise the status quo. Al-Qaeda is motivated um, by religious considerations, and it has no interest in a negotiated uh, settlement of any kind. Um, there is a, you know, this is a very strange thing for people to ever talk about in policy circles and especially in the government, but there's a strong apocalyptic and messianic uh, quality to what we are seeing, and this is certainly true in their language and the, and the um, references they make in their, in their literature. Religiously motivated terrorism is a different beast, and um, once the transaction, the violence, is um, ultimately religious, uh, then there's another party in the, in the equation, and that is the, the divine, the almighty, and the uh, violence becomes sanctified, and when the violence becomes sanctified, then, the, uh, then it becomes the more the better. Whereas if you're uh, you know, genuinely political group, even though you may use religious trappings for, uh, to, uh, to burnish your legitimacy, then you still want to uh, gain leverage over your opponent as opposed to annihilate your opponent. And that's why Al-Qaeda is different and why I think that Al-Qaeda needs to be at the core of the global war on terrorism. We don't need to worry as much about all those other cats and dogs Hezbollah is, uh, is a dangerous group. Hamas is a dangerous group. We do need to have vigorous policies to confront them, but they do not threaten their vital interests in anything like the same way. Dan, what you describe, in essence, is an armed ideology, an armed doctrine, if you will. And, and I tend to look at the global insurgency that you have. That's exactly the, the right phrase. Well, then, I guess the question <laughs> is, I find it interesting that you're using terms such as conspirators and focusing on law enforcement, uh, and uh, I know this is an unclassified setting, but didn't mention the Department of Defense once. Why shouldn't we look at this as more than a metaphorical war? Or why shouldn't we look at it as a metaphorical war? Why should this still be a law enforcement activity where we're seeking to, yes, disrupt, but uh, to capture, prosecute, and, uh, and imprison terrorists when we're looking at something that uh, not simply a, a law enforcement problem? Well, it's, it's, I mean, you're absolutely right that it's not just a law enforcement or intelligence problem. Um, <clears throat> and um, I didn't mean to imply that it, it was in any way, but we are not going to see al-Qaeda on the field of battle, certainly not after Afghanistan. Uh, our our uh, principal challenge will be to track down al-Qaeda cells in cities, in remote areas, to prevent... Um, terrorist camps from cropping up again in the Caucasus where they may be, in Saudi Arabia where according to news today there, there may be some. Uh, but it is not first and foremost a military mission and um, it will be the case that special operations forces will be called upon to carry out missions I think with increasing frequency and that's all to the better and I think that for too long the United States has had an allergy about using forces that way and we're going to need to do it. But uh, it's going to be uh, at the at the tactical level first and foremost a challenge for intelligence services and for our liaison partners uh, who have the wherewithal in whatever country to uh, wrap up uh, cells and uh, put operatives out of business. 
the argument is often made, particularly from the right, that it was a mistake to treat, it a, to treat terrorism as a matter for law enforcement. And my response to that is, well, it was never true that it was only uh, for law enforcement in the sense that we felt that bringing people to court was the ultimate goal. No, the ultimate goal was to put them out of business. And there are different ways you can put them out of business. And one way is covert operations that may involve the use of lethal force. And one way may be arresting people uh, you know, in downtown Paris. Now, if you arrest someone in downtown Paris, you're not going to take them out and shoot them. That's a, you know, I think a, a violation of our values and of our uh, laws. So I think we have to be able to use both. And um, my own feeling is that if we use the military to, uh, uh, too promiscuously, and if we invade whole countries and occupy them, we create more problems than we will, we will solve. We need to use the entire arsenal of uh, tools at our disposal. I hope I've answered your question. And then Ray Perry, I'll ask you. Of Well, I, I agree with the framework uh, and the vision that you enunciated, but I disagree with the case that you cited. Uh, the the uh, predator was employed in a part of Yemen where there is no central authority, and um, and I am certain that it was done so with the authorization of the Sana'a government. Uh, the predator will not be used uh, to take out a cell in Hamburg where we have police resources who can you know, surround buildings and take a chance with their own lives and arrest people. But that was not possible in Yemen, and that has been a big problem that we've had with Yemen for a long time. Similarly, there are parts of the Philippines that are not governed by central authority, and that's why we have special operations troops, uh, at least training uh, Filipino troops to do that kind of work there. Uh, there are going to be places like that. Um, you know, the Pankisi Gorge is another one, perhaps, where uh, we're going to see military force uh, used. But by and large, I agree with you, and as part of the legitimacy of the, the, the whatever you want to call it on, on terrorism, um, and by the way, I should, I should point out that my, my qualm is with the metaphor of an army. You know, the, the, the metaphor of a war I don't like very much either, but having been a political speechwriter or a presidential speechwriter, you know, there's some battles that just aren't worth fighting, and they're going to call it a war no matter what. I mean, you know, we had the moral equivalent of war over raising the thermostat. So, you know, I, but you are right, and legitimacy is a very important issue. And I think one of the huge problems we face in the years ahead 
is balancing our concerns for uh, human rights and the rule of law in a lot of countries where we need their help, we need their assistance in, in dealing with terrorists, and they have a lousy record. And we're going to uh, be challenged to uh, uh, maintain uh, sort of pressure on the full front of, of our values and our equities and our policies in dealing with these countries, and it's not going to be easy. I think, though, if we just do only terrorism, we will come to regret it and we'll, it will backfire. Uh, I'll get over here in a second. I'm sorry. <laughs> you uh, there have been um, there has been a chatter, we might say, in Washington to use an overused word about uh, a few countries in Europe that have been reluctant to uh, uh, cooperate as much on the intelligence side, but they're peripheral countries. Uh, with, um, uh, with those nations that, whose help we need most, uh, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, cooperation has been excellent. And where I see the problem is, is when you need to raise issues that require political capital and where you need to find leaders who are going to actually say in public, you know, we really need to start working on, uh, you know, democratization policies because of terrorism. And we're, you know, the U.S. is pushing something like that. Um, they may do lip service occasionally and say, yes, well, we're all for that. Uh, but we don't have a common agenda. And we have a real problem because the issues we're dealing with in the Muslim world are not ones that can be solved by the United States alone. In fact, the United States has such a toxic presence in, in the Muslim world uh, that when we try to address them, uh, we may cause more problems than we can solve. So I hope that answered your question. Okay. Um, I'd like to return to this issue about the war on terrorism. There is one period when it clearly was a war stages of the war in Afghanistan. And yet it strikes me as truly bizarre that during that period, when it was possible to inflict very serious damage on Al-Qaeda in the field, there was a reluctance to commit substantial military force, American military force. Uh, buying off warlords to wage your war for you didn't work very well in the Middle Ages, and it certainly doesn't work well in the early 21st century. It seems to me that we're basically adopting the worst of all possible strategies, uh, avoiding the actual conduct of a serious war when it was one, and then using the rhetoric of war when, as you point out, that turns out to be counterproductive in playing directly into the hands of Al-Qaeda and mobilizing concerns about American aggressiveness. Well, I'd like to just say I agree and leave it at that. but. Um the war in, in Afghanistan was waged in the way it was waged because uh, when it was asked, the Pentagon did not have any good plans. The Pentagon said, well, it's going to take us X months to move X divisions, and George Tenet was sitting there with his plan to put his paramilitaries on the ground and to uh, uh, spread around a lot of cash, something that some of us wished he had done in the late 90s when this issue was raised. Um, and there was a strong feeling that, you know, we had to do this sooner rather than later. Um, I was not privy to any of those deliberations. I, I would have thought that we would have wanted more boots on the ground 
particularly when it came to things like Operation Anaconda, uh, we lost some big opportunities. Um, and uh, to those who um, believe that, uh, you know, in, in in the front or the back of the administration's collective mind was always the husbanding of resources for Iraq. Um, you know, this may be an additional piece of evidence, but uh, it'll take some other leaker to uh, to uh, demonstrate that. Um, you mentioned resource terrorism to be the most So grateful, because um, <laughs> the first question is tough enough. Um, no, there's not. I would not argue there's anything innate about Islam. My point was that Al Qaeda, and if I didn't express myself correctly, I apologize. Al Qaeda's genius has been to translate grievances into a religious idiom in a way that resonates with Muslims, and um, the. The root causes of terrorism are uh, a lot of different kinds of deprivation. The lack of political voice is a huge issue for in all of these societies. The anger at repressive authoritarian regimes is clearly a core motivating factor. And you know, Al Qaeda has translated this into uh, a religious. Uh, idiom by saying that uh, you know the our near enemy, which was the focus of Islamist violence before uh, the mid 90s, the near enemy, uh, these authoritarian regimes that we hate and that are the enemy of Islam, um, has beaten us at the at the national level. They all have very good secret services. They're you know all of our people are being uh, imprisoned and tortured. So we need to go after the far enemy, which is the United States and Israel. To uh, increasingly, they, they uh, like to adduce Israel because it plays to uh, people's uh, concern over the, uh, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, we need to go after the United States, the far enemy, and we need to inflict catastrophic damage because only that will convince Americans that they are at war and that they. Um, will pay an enormous cost for supporting these regimes, and we want, this is how we want to get them out of the region. Uh, it's interesting to note that when Ramzi Yusuf was debriefed after being caught in Pakistan in uh, 1995, uh, he said that his, uh, his original plan for the World Trade Center was he was going to topple one building into the other, and it would kill a quarter of a million people, because only then would Americans know they were at war. Um, the point is not that this is... Um, that religion is something separate, uh, distinct from all the other <coughs> kinds of 
grievances in some way. It's that religion is the, is the vehicle. And because of the additional emotional charge that religion carries with it, it has been so effective and transformed the nature of terrorism. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I mean, I talked about political voice, but I should also add, you know, economic deprivation, uh, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, authoritarian regimes, um, all these things get funneled into the Al-Qaeda worldview. What is interesting about jihadist terrorists is that they tend to come from educated classes. They tend to come from pretty good families. Uh, and, uh, uh, I mean, Ayman al-Zawahiri is practically an Egyptian aristocrat and a surgeon. Bin Laden's wealth we all know about. Many of them are engineers, doctors, uh, economists, and the like. Uh, and, um, you know, it's a classic case of the intellectuals leading the revolt and hoping that they can build a constituency among uh, the rest of the society. Uh, much, it's very important to remember, much of what al-Qaeda does is... Um, meant to demonstrate their bona fides and to attract the following. I mean, their claim is that they are the legitimate defenders of Muslim interests. See, I wanted you to address the foreign policy side of the whole thing because you, I mean, you, you discussed in your book the fact that, you know, it's there now, this is what we need to contain it. I mean, there has to be foreign policy side to it. I mean, what, is the U.S. foreign policy towards certain regions going to change in any way? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the U U.S. relations with, um, particularly the Arab world, if we had more time we could talk about Pakistan and Indonesia and the like, but let's just talk about the Arab world for now, has focused on two things historically. Gulf security, a.k.a. oil, and, um, and, and containing Iran, and, um, and the Middle East peace process, and building support for that, and keeping Arab countries from sticking the knife into it. This is the reason why we've had what Richard Haas has referred to as the Arab exception. We did not promote democracy in these countries. Um, we had Cold War considerations as well. Uh, for a long period of time, we basically made a deal with authoritarian rulers and said, you do what you want at home, and you just line up behind us on these other issues, and, you know, we'll give you military assistance, and um, we'll station our troops in your kingdom so that you don't have to worry about Iraq and things like that. And that was the transaction. Those were the, the quids and the quos. What we found out on 9-11 is that it wasn't a very good deal and that uh, these countries had become uh, incubators of terror and that what went on within them was actually a matter of grave uh, U.S. concern. And uh, my hope is that we will come to the point where we uh, understand that. And I think the president's speech on democracy was actually not a bad first step. Um, and that we uh, begin dealing with some of these issues through a broader uh, and deeper engagement. Now, a couple of caveats. One is democratization sounds great, um, doesn't always work, and if we push too hard right now, we'll wind up with exactly the result we don't want, because the only organized opposition in most of these countries is uh, is Islamist. So we need to proceed very cautiously, and it's actually an open question whether American diplomacy can be subtle enough to achieve the desired ends in this regard. We need to focus on things like 
um, rule of law and uh, grassroots organization and empowerment of women, which is a very difficult issue in most of these countries. We need to focus a lot on education because as long as um, religious schools are the haven, especially as is true in Pakistan, for people who have no place else to go and who can't get square meals, uh, we're going to have a big problem. Uh, we need to reinvigorate the peace process because um, the U.S. is no longer viewed as a trusted interlocutor or as a power that has any concern for the well-being of Muslims. And even though we may not get a solution, we need to show goodwill there, and that requires a lot of energy. And I think that we also need to recognize that, awful as it sounds, we're going to need to uh, not only lobby for economic liberalization, but uh, have to reinvent or improve our assistance programs uh, to at least make some changes at the margins. And my concern is that we are so heavily mortgaged to Iraq now that we don't have any of the resources we need to put flesh on the uh, on the rhetoric of uh, democratization. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a bit about um, this, uh, how recent movements by Libya and Iran um, might affect general comment before I get to those two specific cases. Um, State-sponsored terrorism, uh, I wouldn't want to say it's not a big deal, but it's not the preeminent problem before us. Um, Afghanistan was a terrorist-sponsored state, and um, that was why the Taliban had to be removed and al-Qaeda evicted from the circles of power. The last state that really gave al-Qaeda any material support was Sudan, so far as I know. And I, you know, I knew the intelligence pretty well in my day. Um, It's been a little while, but nothing that I have heard has changed my mind about that. And I've written a number of articles saying that that I thought that the links that were alleged between al-Qaeda and and Saddam were uh, were specious. And I haven't made any friends doing that. But... um, None of these countries, none of the traditional state sponsors of terror, um, has believed for some time that they could carry out uh, major terrorist attacks uh, undetected anymore. And I think this is why Iran has not sponsored an attack against the United States since Kobar Towers, why Saddam did not even try anything after the attempt to assassinate uh, the first President Bush, um, and why Syria. Com- Syria has no interest in attacking us anyway, but, you know, why Syria has uh, uh, laid down the law for Hamas and Hezbollah that they focus only on on, uh, Israel and or Jewish targets abroad. 
unfortunately, because we have a global war on terror, um, we find ourselves uh, often uh, in uh, perhaps excessively confrontational modes with, with some of these countries when, in fact, they are uh, eager to do business with us regarding al-Qaeda, which they view as a threat. Now, specifically on Libya, um, and Libya, by the way, has been cooperating on counterterrorism matters for about five years now. Um, Libya has been out of the business of terrorism for a decade. And, um, you know, I think it's all to the better that they're going to forswear their WMD programs. I don't think those were realistic. Those programs were going to take them anywhere uh, anyway. Um, and I think that they felt that this was an opportune time to get the most for their uh, bargaining chip. I don't think that it's very hard for me to read how this affects Gaddafi domestically. I'm not a uh, uh, Olivia expert. My guess is he couldn't have done it without the backing of, I think it's his brother-in-law who runs the uh, Secret Service there. Um, I'm going to leave it to uh, some Iran experts to, uh, uh, and I know there's some in the room, who could give a better explanation of why uh, Iran did what it did. I think that it actually values its ties with the Europeans quite highly. Didn't want to be in a confrontation with the United States at a moment when it has a very divided government. Doesn't know what kind of relationship it wants with the United States. Um, in neither of those cases, though, is there any direct relationship with the global war on terror in any significant way that I can identify. I hope that answers your question. Well, yeah, it's interesting your comment about how most uh, Arabs or Muslims think that the war in Iraq is part of a plan to basically destroy Islam. Uh, they also have probably control of the oil. And that's also reflected in Osama bin Laden's recent encyclical. Uh, if the United States leaves Iraq at any time in an orderly or disorderly fashion, aren't these people going to see this as a major victory for the uh, violent insurrection against it? Somewhat comparable to Afghanistan. Uh, the Soviet Union continued to support this regime in Kabul even after the left. So that the, the problem is, is it's extremely encouraging the terrorism uh, because they can see this as a major victory against the superpower. Um, whenever we, anyone, makes a, you know, a decision to retreat, to leave, uh, this is the challenge they face. I mean, you know, at the time, most people applauded Barack's decision to get out of southern Lebanon, and uh, you know the radical, the rejectionists portrayed this as an enormous victory for their cause. And um, in fact, uh, other groups. And they believed that. I'm sorry, and they believed it. Yeah, and uh, other groups have, uh, as a result, sought to emulate that or to achieve similar uh, success. To my mind, um, you know, we, we do what we do for our own good reasons. If we do leave uh, Iraq, um, you know, why would we be doing it? We would be doing it because we decided that it's not doable. <laughs> that is to say that creating the Iraqi state that we had envisioned is not doable. Yeah, then it, in fact, will be a defeat for the United States, and I'm afraid that the, uh, our opponents will have something to... They see it as creating a state. They see it as controlling the state. Well, it depends on the circumstances we leave in. Uh, if we leave behind a stable uh, regime that is at least headed towards uh, more uh, representative 
institutions that has managed to maintain uh, internal comity. Uh, I don't think it'll be a disaster. What worries me is that Iraq has become a, a, a theater for jihad, and the, the word has gone out that radicals need to uh, come there and fight, and they want it to be a second Afghanistan. That's what worries me right now. And it hasn't happened in, to a great extent yet, but our intelligence on this is very limited. Okay. Can, one last one? I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, just, I think I have bad peripheral vision or something. My bad lady question is I was very struck by your point about being drawn tactically to Iraq, while the Biden president truly said that it seems that we're also being drawn, um, I want to say strategically, but more than that, ideologically, I'm thinking that it's time to work to use the call. If we increasingly, as a government, as a colleague, use religion as our understanding of ourselves as a person, it seems that we're totally drawn to the discourse in which there is no standpoint for negotiation. Although, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to dismiss religious people will. More the way the, the you know, higher, higher being, higher mission card is displayed, it seems to me we're being drawn as much ideologically as we are tactically, and that's one of the reasons why the strategy factor is so hard. Well, I, I, I would just say I don't think there's going to be a basis for negotiation. What I think we need to do is avoid further radicalization on both sides. We need to avoid having. Uh, the unconvinced, the fence sitter in the, in the Muslim world become a, an Al-Qaeda follower. I am deeply concerned that we are establishing uh, a dynamic of radicalization, and so when remarks like General Boykin's become instantly telegraphed around the world and are actually complained to, the President was complained to about them in Indonesia, then you know that you know, we need to be careful about these things. So let me just answer this question, because you were waiting patiently. And I, um, half of it we've got just uh, half of it, but, um, That's a great question, and I don't have an answer, and it's something I'm looking at right now. I mean, right, right now I'm trying to get started on studying the parallels between this and the Cold War and what we did successfully to combat the ideology without alienating others through uh, supporting repressive regimes. It's a very good question, and I don't have the answer yet. So. Thank Daniel for coming out and spending time with us. I know he's uh, rushed to get back to Washington. Um, he was a speechwriter for three years, which he slipped in slightly, and he was more than that. He was the director of speechwriting for the president at the National Security Council for three years, and I think it shows in how well uh, he can put a speech together for himself. So uh, I want to thank you very much for a very enlightening and nicely put together talk.